0: Who is this man? Well, we Christians believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Mysteriously, he is fully God and fully man in one person. Us mere mortals, we are one nature and one person. But Jesus is two natures. In one person. And we believe that Jesus did not change in and out of one nature for another depending on the occasion, like Clark Kent changing into his Superman suit. Jesus didn't have two masks, one divine and one human, which he put on depending on the circumstances. Two natures, one person. This is Jesus Christ. The Chalcedonian Creed, written in 431 A.D., summarizes it so well. It is thick. Warning, this is thick. But this is good. Jesus is like us in all respects except for sin. Begotten before the ages from the Father as regards his divinity. In two natures which undergo no confusion, no change, no division, no separation. At no point was the difference between the natures taken away through the union, but rather the property of both natures is preserved and comes together into a single person and a single subsistent being. He is not parted or divided into two persons, but is one and the same the only begotten Son. Now, where do we get all that? Do we get that from the Bible? Can we get that from the Bible? Indeed, we do get it from the Bible, but not all in one place. We have to piece together the evidence, the data from different parts of the Bible to come to those conclusions. Now we today, thankfully, have the whole of the New Testament scriptures from which to do this. We have lots of theological data to put in the theological machine, we could say. We not only have the four gospel accounts, but we have passages like Philippians 2, where Christ is said to have emptied himself, and yet... He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped or reached for. Now, for those who were actually in the story, say, of Matthew's gospel account, those in the story, those who were hearing and seeing Jesus as he taught and spoke about himself and did miraculous things in real time, well, they were getting new data constantly. Story after story, scene after scene, sermon after sermon, miracle after miracle. And step by step, for those who had eyes to see and ears to hear, for them, well, it would eventually start to become unavoidably clear that this is no ordinary man. This is no mere prophet. This is not just a so-called Messiah. This is God and man. Our passage for today in Matthew 14. Turn there if you would. Our passage for today in Matthew 14 takes a big step forward in Jesus' self-revelation of who he is and what he came to do. It is a major step forward in the disciples' understanding of who Jesus is. Or to put it another way, our passage for today is one of the best in all of Matthew to highlight for us Jesus' divinity and his humanity. Both. So like the disciples who were hearing and seeing all this, For the first time, in real time, may we today truly see this one that is revealed here. May we truly know this one and know him aright. May we truly understand all that he is and all that his coming means for us. And and may we truly respond to it as we should. Matthew 14, starting in verse 13, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. The day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. He said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was long away from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all the region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well well here we have three different scenes and the emphasis in all three scenes is most squarely put on jesus's divinity over his humanity but his humanity is clearly demonstrated at least twice at the beginning of two of these scenes So let me pull out that one theme of Jesus' humanity for us. I'll pull that out as a fourth point for us to consider separately. So if you're a note taker, we have four headings for these three scenes. Here's the first. The human need to retreat. The human need to retreat. Verse 13, now when Jesus heard this. When he heard what? Well, when he heard, as it says in verse 12, about the death of John the Baptist. When he heard about the death of John the Baptist, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Now, as we'll see, this desire, this plan to withdraw from the crowds and be alone gets interrupted. Verse 13, in the middle there, but when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And then Jesus has to put his plan to retreat on hold as he encounters this great crowd and heals many and feeds 5,000, but notice that it's after that, down in verse 22 and 23, that he gets back to his original plan to retreat. Immediately, he had the disciples get in the boat. He dismissed the crowds, and after he dismissed them, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. So let's piece these together and consider what it suggests. Jesus desired to get away, to be by himself, to pray. Presumably, he desired to get away, to mourn the death of his cousin and friend and co-laborer in the kingdom, John the Baptist. Perhaps it was also to contemplate the significance of John the Baptist's death in light of his own coming death. I mean, if they're willing to kill the preacher of righteousness, John the Baptist, And it won't be long before they do the same to Jesus. He got away to pray. To pray to his father as he did so many other times in the gospel accounts. The gospels often mention it just in passing like here. That Jesus went away to pray. But then we also have records of his prayers like the high priestly prayer in John 17, or what he prayed that night in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now just think theologically with me. If Jesus prayed to the Father, he is not the Father, right? It just makes sense, doesn't it? Jesus cannot be the Father in different form. That's modalism, right? That's an ancient heresy. So Jesus is not the same as his heavenly Father. We see this in his baptism where a voice from heaven spoke about his beloved Son. And we see it here or wherever Jesus prays to his Father. Jesus prayed. And elsewhere we find that he was grieved and was tired and was weary or was hungry or thirsty. Jesus needed to get away. He needed time alone. He needed to refresh, to recharge, to think, to contemplate, and to pray. Do you know that? Christian, have you forgotten that? Have you forgotten that the second person of the triune God so became as one of us that he took on true flesh with real limitations? Hebrews 2 says that he had to become like one of his brothers that he might be a substitute for us, a payment for us. He had to be one of us to take the punishment that we deserve. He became like us in every way, Hebrews 2 says, except for sin. And Hebrews 4 tells us that we now have a high priest who can fully sympathize with our weaknesses because he's experienced those weaknesses, even temptation, himself. Now going back to his humanity, the humanity that was on display in gospel accounts like Matthew 14, let's just consider this. Let's apply it like this. If, if Jesus in his humanity needed rest and retreat and refreshment and prayer, then what human is there who is somehow above such things? None of us are. None of us. None of us are. There is a human need to retreat, to refresh, to recharge, to reset, and to pray. And Jesus shares in that with us. And he models it for us here. And if you think, so far so good in this sermon, I'm pretty good in the balance of my life. I know how to rest. Work hard, play hard. That's my motto. I always get eight hours. Then maybe you could ask yourself this convicting question. When you feel like you need to recharge, retreat, reboot, how well do you do it without your phone? And how much is prayer a part of it? That's a question I asked myself this week. Jesus had a human need to retreat because he was human. Now, secondly, we see that he also had divine power to provide. Divine power to provide. Now, let's go back to verse 13, where Jesus' original plan to retreat was interrupted by this persistent crowd. Remember, Jesus got in a boat with his disciples to try to retreat from the crowd, but they followed him along the coast on foot for who knows how far. Verse 14, when Jesus came ashore, he saw this great crowd. Remember, he wanted to retreat. That's why he got in the boat. And when he came ashore, he saw this great crowd. And what's next? What would you say? How would you feel when your legitimate plans of rest and refreshment were interrupted once again? Well, Jesus had compassion. On them, Do you see that? Verse 14, he had compassion on them. And so he got out of the boat, and he healed their sick. In the other gospel accounts, he also was teaching them at this time. And so healing and teaching, the time is passing, and then we come to sunset. And remember, Jesus was heading out to a desolate place. That's probably where he landed ashore. A desolate place. We're not sure where. We're not sure how far it was from where he set out. But it had to be a ways. And these people desperately followed him on foot and eagerly stayed with him while he was healing and teaching for hours, apparently with little thought about the time or food. And then the disciples step in. They say that this is a late hour. They know that their own bellies are growling. And so they tell Jesus to send the people away. Taco Bell is still open. They can make it if they hurry. Now, were the disciples here being rude or uncaring or stingy or self-focused? Or just practical and sensible? You know, they're kind of like Jesus' handlers at times where they need to think, all right, let's, let's do this, let's get to the next thing. Let's... Well, it's not clear quite what their motives were, but Jesus takes advantage of that moment to test and grow his disciples' faith, to reshape their perspective on the weary and the sick and the hungry people here, and to reveal more of himself once again to the disciples and the crowd. And so Jesus tells the disciples, you give them something to eat, verse 16. And he knows the absurdity of the physics involved here. He knows there isn't enough food on hand to feed this large of a crowd. But he's testing the disciples. He's taking them back to his classroom Of faith once again. And so they say, we only have five loaves of bread and two fish. And Jesus says, that'll do. Bring them here. Verse 19, he orders the crowd to sit down on the grass. As in, pull up a chair, we would say. Get ready for a meal. He says a blessing and breaks the loaves. He gives pieces to all the disciples for them to distribute to all the people. And then miraculously, inexplicably, the food just keeps multiplying as his disciples just keep distributing and keep distributing. Among a crowd so large, it says 5,000 men besides women and children. So what is this, 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 people? And in the end, from five loaves and two fish, it says everyone ate and was satisfied. They ate to the full, and there were even 12 large baskets of leftovers. Now, some have wondered if there is special significance to the numbers involved in this story. Some have thought that maybe the five loaves, you know, five, well, where's five in the Bible? Well, there's the five books of Moses, and sometimes God's word is likened to bread. Eh, I don't know. But the 12 baskets, I think that probably is significant. I mean, at the very least... These 12 baskets connect very well to the 12 disciples who are doing the distribution. It's like there's a large basket at the end for each one of him, each one of them to hold in his hands, look down upon and see the math doesn't work here. This is something And the 12 baskets may also have been reminiscent of the 12 tribes of Israel, suggesting that God was once again miraculously feeding his people. We'll come back to that. This feeding of the 5,000, this miracle is the only miracle, except for the resurrection of Jesus, that is in all four gospel accounts. It's the only one. That is in all four gospel accounts. It is so significant. It's so impressive, involving so many people with so little food and with so much left over at the end. It's so inexplicable. Other miracles we can picture in our mind's eye. We, we don't know how they happened. We're not presuming to know that. But, but we can imagine A girl who is sick and then is no longer sick. A man who can't walk, and then now he can walk after Jesus touched him. We can picture that. I don't know about you, but I can't picture how they just kept distributing and the bread just kept being there. I don't know. It's inexplicable. And it's so instructive. It is so quintessentially Jesus showing his compassion, his care, his power, working through his weak disciples. And it's also richly theological, historically significant. There was another time long before this where God miraculously miraculously fed his people when they were in a desolate place. In the, the exodus... You can find it in Exodus 16. there God miraculously fed his people on a daily basis with this manna, this bread-like substance from heaven. The two stories, Exodus 16 and the feeding of the 5,000 are, aren't identical but they're too similar to be coincidence. Jesus was feeding, God's people miraculously as only God can do. And he makes that explicit in John chapter 6 as he explains what's going on in the feeding of the 5,000. You can read that later on your own. So for us today, the most important implication of a passage like this is who This is. Who is this man? Who can do this? Who is this man that does the very acts of God without blushing and without blasphemy? But once we understand who this is, then maybe a passage like this also does lead us to ask ourselves, why do we ever doubt that our God, our Jesus, can do anything. He's limited by nothing. There is no need, no problem, no lack that is beyond his capabilities. I ask myself, why do I operate like he's limited by certain circumstances when actually desperate situations are his Preferred environment to demonstrate his power. He loves to show his strength in weakness and with little. Don't doubt him. Jesus has divine power to provide. Thirdly, he has divine power over stormy seas. Stormy seas. Notice how Jesus is ramping up his intentionality Intentionality to grow his disciples' faith and further reveal who he is. Of course, Jesus is always intentional about everything he does, but you can see the intentionality here in a new way. When in verse 22, he made his disciples get in a boat and sail to the other side of the sea, he says that they will go before him and that he'll meet them on the other side later how will he meet them on the other side? That's not said. I'm sure they wondered. I'm sure they were confused. Nevertheless, they do what their master tells them to do. Remember, this is when Jesus finally gets some time alone to pray in verse 23. But fast forward several hours, and the disciples have been out, at sea, in their boat, battling the winds and waves of a fierce storm, and they were a long way from the land. A long way from either shore. What's described here with just an economy of words, you can imagine it took place over several long, grueling hours. In the dark. Long into the night, into the morning. And then, sometime in the fourth watch of the night, this is the block of time, 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., middle of the night, pitch black, out at sea in the storm. In the fourth watch of the night, verse 25, they see a man walking on the sea. And they were terrified. They thought it was a ghost. They cried out in fear. They shrieked, literally. But Jesus immediately, so, so kind and gracious of him, he immediately says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Behind those English words, it is I, are some Greek words, ego, a me, which are elsewhere Translated, I am. Jesus uses what is potentially just a common phrase. You know, it is I. I am. I'm here. It was used that way, but he uses it quite deliberately, oftentimes to identify himself with God's personal name. This goes back to Exodus 3, where Moses said to God, what name should I say to Pharaoh if he asked what is the name of the God who sends you. Who do you speak for? What is his name? And God says, tell Pharaoh, I am who I am. I am. Yahweh. After Exodus 3, Yahweh. I am. Represented in our English Bibles with uh, small caps, Lord. Lord. That becomes God's personal name. It is so divine and so holy that pious Jews would not write it out but only abbreviate it. And then you come to Jesus in the New Testament and without blushing and without blasphemy, he takes up this divine name and applies it to himself. He says, I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the bread of life. And so in Matthew 14 here, Jesus walks upon a raging sea and speaks of word of comfort to his disciples by once again identifying himself with the divine name, I Am, is here. But it's not just those words that signal divinity. It's also the miraculous act, him walking on the water. In ancient Jewish thought, The seas, water, represented chaos and death and destruction. So many Old Testament texts speak of God's power over the sea. Like Job 9, verse 8, God tramples the waves of the sea. And so many Old Testament texts also speak of the trouble of God's people metaphorically in terms of storms and sea and water and waves. And they also speak of God rescuing his people out of the deeps, out of the storm, like Isaiah 43, which Reed read for us earlier, or or like the great Exodus story where God parted the Red Sea. So we're not done with our story of Jesus out at the sea with his disciples, but let's just tuck away that this is a rich historical, theological tradition and imagery that Jesus is not just performing an impressive trick when he walks on the waters. He's once again doing God stuff and saying God things about himself. But there's a second half to this scene Enter Peter. Oh, bold Peter. Verse 28, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Now, many have assumed that this is impetuous of Peter, presumptuous of Peter. But notice that Jesus responds to it with the word, come. Not a rebuke, but invitation. Apparently, Peter's request represents something of a growing faith. Apparently, his thinking is along these lines that if it is Jesus out there in the sea, then being with him out in the stormy sea is actually safer and better than being in the boat. Not to mention that if it's Jesus walking on water, then Peter can too. And he does. Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water to Jesus. Astounding. And it's just, it's just worth stopping there and just taking that in. But we do have to press on, and we do find out that Peter, before long, saw the wind, became afraid, began to sink, And he cried out, verse 30, "'Lord, save me!' Verse 31, Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, and said, "'Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt?' So here is a rebuke, a rebuke of sorts. Peter needed not focus on the winds and the waves or become afraid if he's with Jesus." That's all that matters, whatever else is going around. Are we with Jesus? He need not focus on the winds and the wave or become afraid, but he does. He gives eye to the storm, he becomes afraid, and yet when he does, he then does what's best next. What's best next when we're afraid and in trouble Peter cries out, Lord, save me. And Jesus does save him. Immediately, he took hold of him. He pulled him out of the sea. He brought Peter safely to the boat. And as they entered the boat, at that moment, the wind ceased. Without a word this time. Now, our temptation in a story like this is to ask how we should or should not be like Peter in this situation or in the storm toss situations of our own lives. How should we or should we not be like Peter? That might be a useful exercise a little further down the road. But first and foremost, this is not a story about Peter. It's a story about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And if we want to know what this story is first and foremost about, we can just go back to a similar story back in Matthew chapter 8 where the disciples were in the boat in another storm. And there Jesus was not outside the boat, but he was in the boat and yet sleeping. They feared that they're going to perish. And so they wake up Jesus. And Jesus then rebukes the wind and the waves and it was still how did the disciples respond back then well it says they marveled and they asked who is this what sort of man is this that even the winds in the sea obey him that's the question that's where our attention should be both in Matthew 8 and in Matthew 14. In Matthew 8, they didn't know who is this man. There's no answer yet. They just marvel. But now in chapter 14, after perhaps as many as two years of traveling with Jesus, hearing him teach, seeing him heal, story upon story, interaction upon interaction, miracle upon miracle, Now in chapter 14, they see Jesus walk upon the stormy sea and still it, and they worshiped. And they said, truly, this is the Son of God, the Son of God. The Son of God, that phrase can refer to something less than God elsewhere in the Bible. Adam is called a son of God. Israel as a nation is God's son. King David was uniquely a son of God. But as it's used of Jesus in the gospel accounts, him as the son of God, it's certainly not something less than God. It's a term of divinity, actually. It means that Jesus is the divine son. Son designates The person that we're talking about, not the father, he's the son. But God designates what kind of being we're talking about. Not something less than God, but God. And since he is God, the only son of God, the the God-man who has power over winds and waves, but also knows our weaknesses and cares for us, we can know that he plants his footsteps on the sea and he rides upon the storm. And nothing is too big for him. He stills the storm, the literal storm in the Sea of Galilee, and sometimes, yes, even the storms of our lives. He can. He can still the storms of your life. No storm is too big. No waves are too threatening. I don't know if he will still the storms of your life anytime soon. But I know he can. And I know eventually he will. So remember I said earlier that we can be tempted to too quickly ask, how should we be like or not be like Peter? We have to first ask, who is this man that stills the stormy sea? And we have to rightly answer, yes, he is the son of God. He is God in the flesh. We must worship him. But having done that, we can now also glance over at Peter and learn a thing or two. We can, like Peter, head out to him, even At great risk, even when it looks threatening. And we must keep our eyes on him. We must not fear. We must not focus on the the wind and the waves. But guess what? Like Peter, we too will falter, we too will fail. The question is, when that happens, what will we do next? Like Peter, we must cry out, Lord, save me. Even with little faith, even with some doubt, if we cry out to him, he will reach out his hand and he will take hold of us. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. My love is often cold. He must hold me fast. And we know that he will. Not just because of Matthew 14, but because of the end of Matthew, the cross and the resurrection. He is proven there supremely. He has held us fast. He will hold us fast all the way to the end. Now, our passage ends with one quick scene in the town of Gennesaret. In verse 34 and following, and this will be very quickly. Fourthly, there is divine power to heal with this Jesus. Though Jesus had never been in Gennesaret before, there were people there who had heard about him. Some of the residents had apparently seen and heard him teach elsewhere. And now he's there. And the whole town begins bringing out their infirmed friends and family to Jesus for healing. And he healed them. And their faith is so substantial, and his healing power is so incredible that even touching the fringe of his garment brings healing. This man is literally oozing healing power. It's it's dripping off him through his clothes. What sort of man is this? That's one question to ask. What sort of man is this? And another is, will he heal me? Can I get in on this? Well, we have to remember that the healings that Jesus performed in these stories, they were signs. Meaning they signified something. They weren't performed just to impress people or to rid the world of sickness. He didn't heal everyone. But they signified who he is. What kind of power he has. And they also signified what he ultimately came to do. Meaning, Jesus came ultimately to overthrow the curse. He came to defeat sin and all the effects of sin in this world. He doesn't yet do it, but that's what's to come. That, at the end of time, will be reality. A new heaven, a new earth, no more death, no more sickness, no more need, no more hunger. So the healings and other miracles in the gospel accounts are foretastes of what's to come. They're they're little windows into a new heaven and a new earth that is going to be revealed. As for now, we can certainly pray for Jesus to heal us of this sickness. To take away this problem or that. And he may even now, choose to occasionally give us some of those little pockets, those little windows, those little foretastes of what's to come as he answers prayer and heals us. But even if not, we know what is to come because we know who it is that spoke it and tells it and shows it. We know it's for sure Not because he may or may not heal you. You can know for sure that he will heal us. All of us who are in him, he will heal us in the end. Because he healed some back then. And maybe still heals some today. I don't doubt it. You can be encouraged that Jesus will make all things right when he simply makes it a little right for some people here and there. They're just little windows of what's to come, little foretastes. And we know not only that that is sure and that is coming, but that he will hold us fast until the end. He will hold us firm. He will hold us completely and closely. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we thank you for your saving power, your compassion and care, your work, your saving work for us. Uh, We pray you'd give us faith to see and believe and trust you to walk out to you. And Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you. And when we fail as we will. We pray once again, Lord, as always, that you would hold us firm to the end. We pray this in your strong and saving name. Amen.